You're listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org, or follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host, and today I am joined by Joe Kalia. He is the author of New York and the Lincoln Specials, the President's Pre-Inaugural and Funeral Trains Cross the Empire State. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Reading the preface of your book, you grew up a railroad enthusiast, and there's touching story in, in there about you and your dad and your grandfather all sharing this, uh, this enthusiasm for railroads. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Your dad was a, worked on a railroad. Uh, and then uh, as you get older, there's an interest in the Civil War, and you sort of tie these things together. Can you talk about that? Sure. My dad worked for the New York Central for 25 years, and part of the deal was they had rail passes. So we got to ride the train to Albany, to New York City, see baseball games, all that sort of thing. And uh, along comes the Lionel train, of course, to seal the deal. So I was hooked on trains my whole life. I don't know much about the engineering part of it. It's just uh, the ride, the fun, the the history that goes with it. And then uh, as I grew older, my mother and a friend gave me some books on the Civil War when I was about 10, 12 years old. And that was the end of that. So now I'm all Civil War. And then as I got older, I thought, you know what? Uh, there's certainly connections there because the railroads had a, many contributions to the Civil War. So I was always hoping someday maybe I could do something that would sort of tie the two together. And then this idea came along. I also like local history. And so um, got a trifecta there. And, and that's exactly what this book is. I, I'm, we're probably all familiar with um, – probably more familiar with the funeral ride from Washington to Springfield uh, and somewhat familiar with the pre-inaugural ride. But it's cool to see Lincoln, who we all know and, and, and know so much about, and now see him sort of intersect with uh, uh, 19th century communities, um, which is what this book is. Um, so let's start with that first half, the pre-inaugural ride uh, uh, from Springfield to Washington, D.C., and obviously you cover the stops in New York. First, what's the point of it? Why? Obviously, there's a more direct route from Springfield to Washington, um, but it's decided let's take this sort of long route, especially through New York, which becomes so important. Why? Well, I think Lincoln realized that uh, he was a Westerner and people in the East really didn't know him. And many of them didn't even like him and they thought he was kind of crude and rude um, in his manners, at least in their eyes. So they got this idea of uh, taking this basically two-week whistle-stop tour after the election. Usually whistle-stop tours in more recent times have been before the election. But back in those days, they didn't campaign in the way they do now. In fact, I just found out last week when I visited uh, Buchanan's home in Wheatland that when he ran for president in 18, excuse me, 56, he made two campaign speeches, one on the front porch when he accepted the nomination for president and one on the front porch when he won the election. So people never got to see the people they were voting for. They heard about him, read about him, but they didn't know him. And I think Lincoln realized that and perhaps he realized the troubled times ahead. So he thought it would be a, a kind of good idea. It was just a meet and greet. He really he refused to say anything of substance. He didn't feel he was in the right spot yet, 
when he got to Washington and became president, then he would make speeches that had some meaning. So it was just, hi, how are you? A couple jokes. I'm glad to be here. And back on the train, wave, wave, goodbye. And that's all it was. But for some people, that was enough. You know, they'd seen him, they'd heard him. And uh, that was a little unusual in those days. Of course, there was a lot of talk. Um, uh, pictures of him weren't widely circulated. So like you said, people hadn't seen him. And there was a lot of talk about him being a, an ugly man or you know, not, not a handsome man. And uh, uh, he often made uh, – it was it's a very funny joke, uh, the, the joke that he got the best of, of the bargain, having people having seen him and him having seen them, especially the ladies. Right. Um, so uh, back to the substance – uh, he was criticized, as you said, for for not offering a lot. Um, Frederick Douglass is one of those uh, people who um, criticized him. Um, and the nature of his speeches did change a little bit as he got closer to D.C. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yes. When he was in the Western, I'm only dealing with New York now. I'm not sure yes, yep. exactly, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, what he did when he on the way to sure, New York sure. or out of New York. But from, yeah, from Buffalo the, to New York City. Western part of the state and pretty much the Mohawk Valley, those were his kind of people. You know, they were rural people. They were farmers, simple people, but astute in their own way. And he... You know, didn't really say an awful lot, and they were happy with that. But when he got to the cities, uh, Albany and New York City in particular, where there was a heavy Democratic uh, base, um, he started to bring out some more substantive things, I think, because he realized these people here aren't going to be happy just looking at my face. They want to hear a little something more. And so he did do that. And, of course, in New York City, Fernando Wood, who was the mayor, was sort of an arch enemy in a you know joker kind of way. And uh, they, were, they had the little conflicting speeches when they when they met at City Hall. So he he knew when to say what when the time came and where it was important to say it. Right, and and if if we haven't set the scene properly, I mean, again, this is 1861. It's February. Secession has happened. Uh, while while Lincoln's taking this train ride, uh, Jefferson Davis has taken a train ride of his own uh, f- uh, from Mississippi to Richmond. Uh, so. Um, War might not be inevitable at this point, but there's definitely something coming that's going to have to be resolved. So, and you mentioned Fernando Wood, who uh, a very interesting character. We could talk a lot about him, but um, he's somebody who was sort of floating the idea of secession for New York City. Uh, and you you have that cool scene in your book where him and Lincoln um, are cordial about it, but they have a little sort of face off. The difference, of course, with Davis was he was in office, so he could make more substantive speeches. He was well; he was on his way to be inaugurated too, but uh, he, he his speeches that he made were much uh, um, more ominous and darker. And uh, you know, if they come, we'll give them the sword and all this sort of thing. Right, right. Lincoln wasn't at that point yet where he wanted to even deal with that. Right, right. Um, since we are in the capital region. And uh, I think the title of your talk to the larger roundtable today is Lincoln in Albany. Um, can you talk about his stop here? Um, again, it's mid-February, um, which is interesting because the weather plays a part in what happens in Albany. Can you first start with the weather uh, and how that affected his trip? Along the way, he grew more and more hoarse. And I guess his, from what I've read, his voice was kind of a high-pitched, squeaky voice, right. which you wouldn't expect in somebody who's six foot four, six foot five. But again, he was real thin, so that played into it. So he didn't have the 
voice that was easily projected in the first place. And then he was coming down with a cold to boot. So that didn't help the situation any. Um, from what I understand, back in those days, and it makes sense, if you say you weren't, I'm picking a number, if you weren't in the first 10 rows, you probably aren't going to hear much of anything. Right, right. Um, they had no, you know, they didn't use megaphones and they didn't have bullhorns and they certainly didn't have uh, microphones. So when you went to hear somebody speak, especially outdoors, um, it was problematical how much you were actually going to hear. So he, when he got off the train, there was a big tussle because the crowds were just unmanageable. They finally got him into a carriage and uh, rode down, um, got my only streets right, down Broadway and then up State Street. Uh, to the Capitol, and the crowds were, of course, lining the streets, waving and hollering and everything else. When he got to the Capitol steps, he was met by the governor, and the two of them were going to say a few words on the steps, but they were pretty well either drowned out by the people or the voices couldn't project again. Uh, they said that when Lincoln started to speak, the sun came out and the rays came down you know, as if it was a choreographed thing. And then, of course, they went inside and shaking hands left and right of all the people who wanted to meet the new president. And then he made a pretty significant speech while he was in the legislative chambers, uh, which was full of senators and uh, representatives as well as anybody who knew anybody get themselves in there in the balcony or in the niches along the sides. And apparently from what, what I've read, he made a good impression. And then from that point, I mean, I don't know how the guy did it as far as stamina goes because then they zipped him back down to the hotel where he got to spend about an hour or so. People want to see him. They're there waiting. And then he had a round of dinners, a couple dinners at night, and a, a reception after that. So from a health standpoint, I'm sure his voice was pretty well shot by the time he got on that train to leave. And, and consider that he had, he was coming from Buffalo that, that morning. Correct. So it, early early on the train to Buffalo. And again, this is after having traveled from wherever he was the day before. And then he gets to Albany and uh, to the Capitol. He gives a speech off the train. Then he goes to the Capitol, gives a speech right. in, the, in the Capitol, shakes all the legislators' hands while he's there, and then goes to the Delavan House uh, yes. uh, where he – I think it's a, like a half hour. Then it's a round of dinners, which we'll talk about, um, and then uh, receptions all night. And, you know, he's, he's up until 11 o'clock. It was probably – they probably left – I don't remember the – I tell people I wrote the book. I didn't read it. Uh, <laughs> well, there's five, a lot of detail in it. So I, you know, it's five a, or six in the morning. Yeah, right, so it right. was definitely a 17 hour day for somebody who was in his, well, he was 56 when he died. So he was 52 then. So that must have been quite a, quite a haul for him. Right. And they, they stopped and I, I probably won't get them all, but they stopped in Rochester. They stopped in Syracuse. Uh, they stopped in Utica. Little Falls. It, yes, right, Little Falls. Uh, and even when they didn't stop in Little Towns, they'd slow the train down mm -hmm. and Lincoln might come out and bow and, and uh, just completely exhausting. And, and one thing that uh, probably added to the exhaustion in Albany was, um, and Lincoln uh, probably knew that this was going on, there, the politicians were fighting over, having worked in politics myself and you have a, a, a big name coming in, everybody sort of wants to fight to have that person at their dinner or at their reception. And that's exactly what happened in Albany. I think he had a choice of three dinners, if I'm not mistaken. Right. The House and the Senate and then uh, probably the governor was the other one. And uh, they all, there were two or three dinners that did go on, but I, I don't, can't remember now, but I don't think he went to all of them. He went to the governor's house. Right, right. And had a nice dinner there. But uh, again, you can only eat so much, forget about staying awake. I mean, uh, I don't know how, how they 
politicians do the rubber chicken circuit, you know, yeah, all right. that thing, how they do it. Um, before we get to New York City, if you could talk a little bit about what did the train look like? I mean, I know that there were a, n- a number of engines used. You'd switch an engine out at a city. Um, but what was the, the composition of the train? And I think the, the, the last car was particularly unique in this case. Well, Lincoln, a good, good pilot, astute person that he is, he doesn't want a train load of people tagging along with everywhere he goes. So he instructed his, uh, they had a guy called the superintendent of affairs or something like that. His name was, I think, William Wood. He told him, I only want two cars on that train. And I can't remember. I'm sure there was a baggage car too. So it was, the term they used in railroad talk is it's a consist. So it's an engine, a tender, baggage car, and two coaches basically. And uh, he said, I want any more than that. And of course, not all the reporters were happy with that outcome. The last car was set aside as the family car. And there were obviously close friends and whatnot in the car. Um, it was, you know, there was nothing. That train was, unfortunately, in some ways, the funeral train was more done up than this mm-hmm. train was. This train was for sort of somebody that only 40% of the population wanted to be president. Yeah, right, right. He hadn't really done anything yet. Of a, and there I, wasn't really federal funds being used for this either. Yeah, this was all no. at the charity of the railroads. The, the, the belief is the railroads comped it for him. Right, right. The, the railroad term of riding free is deadhead, which I thought was pretty lousy to be called right, the president's yeah, sure. deadhead. But that's kind of what it was because he didn't have that kind of money. Right. Um, he wasn't rich, but he, he was well off, but not, not the and, standards we know. And the same when he stopped, he was put up at hotels and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Things that would cause such a stir these days. But, you know, <laughs> you know, but yeah. uh, he was happy to take the, the, the free night. You know? And he had his wife and his, uh, let's see, at that point there were three boys with yes. him. Yeah. So there was an entourage that had to be taken care of. I'm sure he didn't expect his assistants and whatnot to pay their own way. So, um, New York City is an interesting place. And... Uh, uh, one, uh, I mean, we already touched on Fernando Wood, certainly not being somebody who was of the same political stripe as Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so while in all these other towns and cities, all the dignitaries of the day greeted Lincoln, it wasn't the same in New York City. Uh, it was it was different. New York City was different in a lot of ways. Can you just talk generally about uh, Lincoln's time in New York City? You know, in retrospect, when you think we're talking here probably about our greatest president, which at that time they didn't know that. They kind of treated him with indifference. Uh, he arrived at the station and like only a few Republican club or party members were there to greet him. There was no you know, brass band, no thousands of people. And it just it struck me as really odd, you know, considering, uh, if anything, uh, Hannibal Hamlin, who was coming in on a train, sort of a similar trip from Maine, he, they had everything out for him when he shows up, but not Lincoln. And uh, so, yeah, he took the carriage ride to the hotel, and, uh, you know, it was it was more low-key than that people would have thought, I guess. At least I would have thought so today. But if you're Abraham Lincoln, that's fine. You know, gonna, yeah, right, right. You know, there are some presidents who would have made a to-do about sure. where, where was everybody, not Lincoln. Um, let's let's uh, pivot now and, and uh, to, of course, we fast-forward uh, four years Um to the assassination, and Lincoln is shot on April fourteenth, uh, eighteen sixty-five, and um, qu- quickly there are arrangements made. Um, who who took charge um, 
of these arrangements. Uh, I know that Mary Todd Lincoln was largely just not in any sort of shape to make. I mean, she was involved. They would ask her things, but she wasn't in any kind of shape to, to do. Who who was ultimately in charge? Ultimately, it was Edmund Stanton. Right. Edmund Stanton and Lincoln um, were close during the war. They both lost sons during the war, young children. So they had a lot of things in common. Uh, Lincoln trusted him emphatically. And as you said, Mary Lincoln just uh, was in no shape to do much of anything. She had originally wanted the train to go to Springfield as fast as possible. And Stan talked her out of that and said he belongs to the people too. And they have the right and the need to, to have closure of their own. So he's the one that talked her into the reverse from the inaugural tour back the same way, much, much longer. As it turned out, she didn't make the trip anyway, so it really wasn't a position on her. In fact, no uh, members of the Blood family made the trip. Robert made it as far as Baltimore, and he came back. Two of Lincoln's brother-in-laws, who I think you know, might have been Confederates in an earlier time, <laughs> uh, they made the trek with the, with the body. So, yes, you're right. Edwin, and Edmund Stanton was a student up being a Secretary of War. He brought in a lot of military people who were very good at executing things that had to be done in a very timely and neat and clean fashion. So he utilized some of those personnel to help him out. And you said that the, the funeral train um, was, in a lot of ways, a lot more done up, a lot, a lot more fitting of a president to ride on. So can you describe what that, that train looked like? I think most people probably picture in there, there, there was the portrait of Lincoln on the train, mm-hmm. but it was, it was a very sort of um, elaborately uh, Victorian sort of, uh, which we could exactly. talk about too, um, uh, set up. If, if they had had a blueprint to go by, you know, it might have followed a rather rope, but there wasn't any. I mean, this had never been done before or since, where you basically dragged a president, I think it's like 1,700 miles by the time you're done, making stops all over the place. So the train itself had 11 cars on it, uh, the engine, the tender, the baggage car, and then nine more or eight more cars, which, you know, Lincoln would not have wanted. Uh, and that was just, every state had some represent. every state, northern state had some kind of a representative uh, senators, congressmen, and whatnot, uh, on that train, addition to reporters and who knows who else. Um, the last car is the, the distinctive car of the train. It was called the United States. It had a golden eagle painted on both sides. And it originally was intended as a chariot for Lincoln when uh, he visited the battlefields of the troops or some state. And Lincoln basically, in so many words, said, I'm not the pharaoh. I don't ride around on those things. So he never used it in life. And then in death, they basically gutted the inside as far as unnecessary furniture hauled in the, the um, casket and some chairs and uh, had a 24-hour guard. People said Lincoln was better guarded in death than he was in life. Mm. And uh, that was the car that everybody, you know, when the train came through at five miles an hour, that's the car everybody wanted to see, which was the last one. Right. Talk about the the job of uh, the the um, as you say in your book, the Herculean task of uh, trying to keep Lincoln's body mm-hmm. in a, in a uh, presentable, uh, because in in a lot of these larger cities, and in New York, it was New York City, it was Albany, and it was Buffalo. Lincoln uh, lied, was laid in state. Um, I believe it was Dr. Charles Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did he do? During the Civil War, a lot of advances were made in medicine, 
because they had to. Sure. And advances were made in uh, taking care of bodies. And the idea of embalming, it got its uh, real jump start in the Civil War. I'm not a chemist or a scientist, but my understanding is you drain the blood and you fill them full of chemicals. And basically what it did was it turned the body to stone so it wouldn't deteriorate anymore. But uh, the problem was it would start to darken the skin color, and there was the problem. So at each major stop, like you say, Albany, they didn't uh, let anybody in to see them until these two guys who were kind of like uh, Hollywood makeup men now. I mean, their their mortuary work was pretty much done. They couldn't do it anymore. You couldn't add any more to the body. It was close. It was solid. Mm-hmm. But they powdered up the face, basically. And they kept doing that as, as they went along, and the face kept getting darker. And this quote I read was something like, had you known Lincoln in life, you would have been appalled at the way he looked. But had you never met him before, you'd say, oh, he looked pretty good. Right. Right. Uh, and, and, and remember, this is over the course of, he, he gets, he, he shot, uh, April 14th dies, April 15th, and he's not buried in Springfield, I think until May 3rd or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one thing that I, well, I mean, I learned a lot of things in this book, but, but something I had never uh, known before, uh, Lincoln's body is brought into New York City and there is an ordinance or some sort of order is issued by the New York City Common Council that bans blacks from participating in any way in, in, the, in the procession or any kind of activities revolving uh, around the funeral. Can you talk about that? And who stepped in? There was something, uh, at the moment, I can't think of his name now, but it was a, a military person of some clout in Washington. Mm-hmm. And they finally, I think originally there were like 10,000 who wanted to march. And by the time all the flap got done, they said, well, you can be the last division, they called it, last division of the procession. They call these things pageants and parades, which seems, again, kind of odd with sure, what you're talking yeah. about. But uh, they said, you can be in the last group. So in the end result, I think about 500 individuals marched. But the others just didn't want to get didn't involved want to, in yeah, anything. Yeah. But yeah, I, geez, I, I think that I think the police commissioner, I don't could remember have been. his name, it was and Stanton, I think, said something. Yeah. I think Stanton said something at some point, too, that... Yeah. that um, so, I mean, um, and obviously, you know, the antithesis of what Lincoln would have wanted. Right, right. But, um, now, now to, just to get back on how over the top it seemed, people sort of... Uh, not, celebrate isn't the right word, but mm-hmm. the... the Morning was so uh, in your face, and uh, um, talk about. I mean, w- one little story in your book, the the story about Lincoln getting his whiskers. And I know this is a little bit of a tangent. Why he grew his whiskers was there was a little girl in in Westfield, New York, a town that Lincoln actually stopped in, and and he greeted that little girl. She wrote him a letter um, uh, recommending that he do it because his face would look better. Um, when he's shot and, and killed, somebody sends her a cloth that has his blood on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of thought of as a nice kind of gesture. I mean, this is just to go to show you. But but this act of mourning is very in-your-face, black everywhere. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about some of the traditions that were, uh, that, that were involved in it's, uh, again, in the times we live in where it's much more subdued and personalized and sedate and not as hoopla, um, that was the Victorian way. And uh, they didn't do some things because 
Mary didn't want it to begin with, or they just felt like Lincoln wouldn't have wanted it. But the idea of the uh, just the train itself was, was in a sense, very great. One of the better Victorian ideas. Let's have a whole three-week thing out of this and drag the train across the country with the body in it and all that. Um, they lockets with the deceased hair in them mm. were pretty common in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, people treasured that. The one that has a little grim by today's standards was the family portrait, where the mom, the dad, the living brothers, and maybe the deceased sister are all together in this portrait. Sometimes somebody's holding the deceased. Sometimes they're in a casket. A couple ways to look at that. That's probably the only picture that ever existed of that child, because who thought the child was going to die? Sure. And people didn't run out and buy pictures like we do today. Right, right. And just the idea, I guess, that you don't want to sit there for that and, and do that. But that was, you know, everybody did it. Mary Lincoln said no. She wanted no pictures. They honored that. Somebody did sneak one picture, sure, which yes. still exists, but mm -hmm. there was nothing like it could have, would have, should have been. And maybe they sold, back in those days, there were hotcakes were pictures of Lincoln, believe it or not, pictures of Booth, yeah. mm -hmm. which people, they collected them sort of like a, like a baseball card album, only it was a cart to visit album. And they would put these, slide these pictures in them and then set them on the front coffee. It was a coffee table kind of thing. And if you were, you could tell if you were in or out, whether or not you were still in the in the booklet or not. So they they did a lot of kind of, of course, department stores, they had a whole section for morning clothing. You know, they had the black crepe available in bolts and uh, hats and this and veils and everything else. Um, and they, they had buttons they made up for the people to wear. I mean, it was... I guess it was a celebration of life in their own way. Yeah, right. But uh, still, by today's standards, uh, sort of grim when I look at it. But Now, Lincoln's body obviously attracts thousands of people. Um, it, and thousands of people attract pickpockets. <laughs> and, and not just... You know, you think of a pickpocket, maybe you think of a local, you know, uh, like, lo, you know, uh, low time, you know, criminal. These were professionals and they traveled from city to city. Um, is this something that you knew about going into this or? No, and it's 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 surfaced again in another book I'm working on. But and I'm not sure this other piece got in the book. I had a tough time with it because I tend to write too much and publishers just go chop it. But at the same time, the pickpockets were working Albany downtown people were ravaging homes in Albany that for people that, I don't know, I mean, I don't know why they sat out and see who left or how they did it, but while people were at the procession watching, their homes were being ravaged, you know, silverware or stuff you could carry out. So these characters apparently had a sort of a idea of how you worked everything. Uh, in Ilian, where I'm from, the 100th anniversary of Remington Arms was a big, 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 big deal. And the same thing happened there. They had pickpockets all over the place, you know, big celebration. People are looking this way. Pickpocket. Wow. So. Um, just fascinating. And, I, and, I, and in the pre-inaugural ride, um, some of them were caught, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was actually a pretty, um, uh, pretty efficient, uh, I forget what city it was. but Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo. So uh, they, they followed them on the train and got them, a lot of them at least. Um, so uh, now, Albany is interesting. Um, it arrives, the train arrives late at night with Lincoln's body. And I think the plan is they'll open the casket for viewing at the Capitol in the morning, but that's not what happened. 
um, what what did happen in Albany. Well, of course, that's one of my favorite parts of the book because the train came into, I believe it was, it was not maybe East Greenbush, but Greenbush to that area where the traditionally the ferry right. uh, would bring people across. When he did the pre-inaugural until the river was frozen, they couldn't do it. So this time they put him on the ferry and they had torches lit, you know, kind of ceremonial. Sure, only, yeah, yeah, yeah. Across the river and they had troops waiting to march with them. And I'm not sure if they had bands or not, but people were lining the street at a late hour to, to see this. Um, I think people in those days, unlike today, people would say, yeah, I'd rather watch the ball game. I'm going to stay home. People flocked to any public thing because it was something to do. Yeah, right, right. Even if it was this. So they brought him up to Capitol late at night, and the people didn't go. They just hung around. And somebody decided, well, geez, you know, if they're here, let's not make them come back. So let's open the doors. And that way more people will get to see him. Because I think, I think they closed the doors at 11 o'clock the next day. Right, right. Right in your face if yes, you were standing yeah, there. People were. And there was a long yeah. line. So um, that's how they got a jump start on that. Right. So just back to the railroad. So if you were coming from New York City or coming southbound to Albany, the, that line did not take you directly into Albany. That took you into East Albany, um, right across the river. And like you said, you would have to take a ferry over into Albany. So that was the, the idea of the... And you're changing railroads too. Yeah, right, right. Um, how about... Well, the, the interesting story in Buffalo, um, Millard Fillmore... Uh, who, who greeted Lincoln when he came in 1861, um, despite, you know, the difference in political views. Uh, Fillmore was a Whig and, and uh, uh, Lincoln a Republican. Um, uh, Fillmore played the role of, you know, nice dig- dignitary in 61, and he did it again in, in 65. But there's an incident where a mob descends on Fillmore's house before, uh, right after the assassination. Can you tell us about that? Uh, Fillmore is one of those presidents that sort of just disappears into the woodwork, yeah, right, the right. wallpaper, and yet he was a class act apparently, and the Lincolns liked him a lot. At the time the funeral train came in, which I believe was around seven in the morning, I believe his wife was ill, and he was taking care of her at home, and he was sort of cut off on some of the news. I'm not even sure if he knew Lincoln was coming, so he didn't make any um, overt gestures, and people really took exception to that, and they forgot what color paint it was. It could have been black, but they plastered his house throwing cans of paint or buckets or however they did it on his house. Later, when it was found out what the true story was, um, you know, people were sorry. Uh, but, yeah, that was he was probably Buffalo's leading citizen for many years. Um, and so Lincoln is, is I think, um, they take him to his, his body to St. James Hall for a viewing which four years earlier he had gone there for uh, a lecture, I think, the, the night he was there, a lecture about Native Americans. So I don't know if you could talk about it, but you said you're writing another book. What, what's the what's the next one? The next one is a book on my hometown, Ilion. Okay. It's obviously going to have a very limited uh, range, but it's a lot of history. It's 300 years of history in Ilion, and the Remington Arms, is, like them or not, um, is the focal point. But there's a lot of other things that happened there that are interesting. Some of it more so to local people. There's only been one book written about Alien. It was written in 1977, and it's really just um, cop, you know newspaper reports over and over and over. It's not. I'm not going to knock another author, but I can do better. Right. right and the town right. deserves it after sure. all these years. Sure. So that's it. I'm also working on one on General Custer and the Shenandoah Valley. I have a little trouble getting that one out there, but uh, 
So I try to keep. Uh, Is it tough to work on two at the same time? Yeah, that was yeah. a mistake. <laughs> we'll do that again. <laughs> well, this one was re- was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, there's this, you know, and we we hardly touched on some of these cities, but there's some really cool stories in there. You know, you meet you meet the mayor in Buffalo, and you meet the the mayor in in Albany and Fernando Wood, and all these really interesting characters. Uh, one story that we could just crowbar in there really quick, which I thought was was uh, was sort of crazy. The railroad. Um, the Hudson Rail Line or whatever. What, what Hudson we, River Rail. H- Hudson River Railroad goes through Sing Sing Prison, or it did back then. <laughs> yeah. And so in 1861, uh, when the Lincoln's train went through, who was there greeting them? Can you, <laughs> the hard to imagine. <laughs> in the first place, let alone the president going riding through a prison. Right, right. The prisoners were lined up yeah, greeting the president. Yeah. So, uh, And that's just one of many really cool stories. So please check out uh, Joe Kalia's book, New York and the Lincoln Specials, The President's Pre-Inaugural and funeral trains cross the Empire State. Joe, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. An excerpt from Joseph Kalia's book, New York in the Lincoln Specials, describing Lincoln's funeral in Buffalo. Upon the hearse's arrival at 12.50 a.m., General Dix waved the bearers forward. Out of the door and down the steps they went. All mourners in the vicinity doffed their hats, and more than a few tears were shed. The 7th Regimental Band struck up the mournful dirge, Rest, Spirit, Rest. The tower bell tolled in City Hall, and the soldiers snapped the present arms, and the crowd of thousands looked on in silence. <laughs>